Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday. Usually I try to... Last couple weeks since I didn't have school, teaching the afternoon, so I was able to get this done earlier in the week. But this week been very busy, and now Yontan's over, things are back to schedule. So at least I'll try to get this done by Wednesday. Um, although, today's a very sad day here because uh, one of my students, 19 years old, was killed in a car crash yesterday. Gavi, and... Is a is just a, bit, a big tragedy. That's all. Um, anyhow, today's uh, podcast a very distinguished sponsor. Oh boy, Hushim. Uh One of the people that listens here is uh, Sroli Bornstein, the famous Lakewood Dafyumi, who, being a Baltimorean, I never even heard of until a little while ago. Till one of my friends in Lakewood, the Swarm Chatter, introduced us, and now I found out he's the hottest thing in Dafyumi. He really is. And I have, turns out I have people in Baltimore in my shoulder that listen to him every day. And my nephew in Muncie goes there every day. And he's got big Hasidim. So he must have like a radioactive Dafyomi. It's like the most popular one. So uh, he's sponsoring today. But very uh, appreciative and uh, very, what's the right word? Honored and flattered that we have a hush of people listening in over here. Uh, and it so happens... As I said before, after we introduced that he was looking for someone who died this week, the arts that I ordinarily would never have thought of, and that's what I'm going to do today. Uh, that's the son of Note of Yehuda, Shmulando. And um, it's very, I, uh, that's the last thing I would have thought of. However, he put a bee in my bonnet, and I spoke to him last week on Shanarab, I guess, and ever since then it's been halfway in, halfway out of my brain, and, you know, I'll do it. Um, it's it's uh, not the regular type of podcast, although kind of is. Here we deal with the Shmuel Lando. Here we deal with um, different, several different phenomena, historically speaking. First of all, there's the person who has the misfortune to be son of a great man, <laughs> right? Like we saw, remember we talked about Alvin Ben Arambam. He's always going to be the Ben Arambam. You know, the, the brother of the Groh, the brother of Meyer, like uh, Chaim Friedberg, the brother of Morel. Sometimes that's just the way it goes. And you'll always be in the shadow of someone who's a giant. So you could be very close to him, and he was, our hero today, but he ain't his father. You understand? Uh, so that's one kind of uh, interesting thing. One aspect, um, which will play a dominant role in his biography, actually. And also, perhaps even more uh, bitey, is the following. You, you have to have mazel when you live and where you live. Um, you and I, listening today, we have lived our lives in a time when Orthodox Judaism was on the upswing. I would even say things moving to the right. And I'm referring specifically to Limonat Tyra. Here we have somebody like Shirley Bornstein. Thousands of people listening to Adafiomi with the raid and everything. That means it's a new America, you understand? 
has been created a new sociolog sociological reality, which didn't exist when I was very young. Literally didn't exist. Guy could give the most fantastic dafiomi in the world, uh, nobody understood, nobody's interested in it. You, understand? You, have no, you, know, you have no buyers. One of the main sociological effects of the yeshiva revolution has been quantitative. Not qualitative, quantitative. They've just turned out masses of students and graduates who know how to learn. And this has created a market, and this has created demand. And the point I'm getting at is that it's created in my lifetime, your time, lifetime, a new kavadatoru that didn't exist once upon a time. As I say, if you went back far enough, let's say 100 years ago, I won't get too specific, in America or a place like that, you know, those poor guys who were born back here way back when, maybe they were big Talmudic Chachamim, nobody in Yeshul gave a hoot, uh, nobody had talked to, uh, best thing you do is give a little stupid speech in Yiddish, you know what I mean, yeah, maybe a blotch here once in a while, okay, you know, very superficial, because, because there wasn't the audience, <laughs> right? And uh, the person who succeeded in the rabbit at that time was a good talker, a good flatterer. It didn't matter how uh, learned you are because public wasn't in a position to understand such things. It never is. Right? It never is. If I ask you a question today, who's, uh, you out there, who's bigger? The note of Yehuda or, I don't know, the Hafla? I mean, who can you have to be a big time, maybe through a board so you can answer that, yeah? You have to be a big time to answer that question. Elamai, you go by what people say. So and so. Like today, you say, who did Gedolim today? Rabbi this, Rabbi that. How do you know? How do you know? You. You've read their stuff. You've heard their things. You're in a position to make a judgment. You go by what it says in the paper. If it says in the Yatayat and the Mishpach or something like that, that's what they say in Shul. That's what you go by. You understand? This is what they call the manufacturer charisma. The sociologists refer to it. Now, um, the reason I'm mentioning that is we've lived in a time when there's been a revival in, uh, in Gemara and even Lomdas and Sfarim and, of all sorts. And it's at the moment still on the uptick. And that's been a good thing. But if you lived, as I said before, 100 years ago, 60 years ago, it was a different world. Even in the Orthodox Jews, even the ones that were Shema Shabbos, most of them didn't know much. Are they at this command? So that means a guy, like in my lifetime, had been lucky in that regard. But on the other hand, there were the, the, the rabbi who was there 100 years ago in New York or Baltimore was unlucky. You get what I'm saying? Uh, you have somebody who was a big rub in Baltimore. There were such people, very big. But he had the misfortune of being here in the 1920s. Boy, would have he loved to be here in the 1990s or the 2000s. Then he'd have an oilam to talk to. They'd have people flocking around them. They see the Gavaldiga Paisig, a Gavaldiga Amkan. You know, you get what I'm saying? But he didn't have the, that luck. He was in Baltimore in the 1920s. He was in Lakewood, New Jersey in the 1930s. You see, it was the wrong time. So, uh, our hero and his father, Nebihuda, lived through good times and bad, in the sense that I'm speaking about. And in the course of his lifetime, he lived in Prague all of his life, just about. In the course of his lifetime, things inexorably moved to the left for a whole bunch of reasons. And he wasn't able to stop it. And therefore, he was a sad person when he died. Now, this is just I'm a bummer, but this is how it works in history. It depends where and when you live. So the quality of your own scholarship is also affected by when and where you live, by the, what we call the historical context.
Now, our hero, Shmuel was the son of Nodib Yehuda. I know about the Yehuda. I did all my graduate work on that in, in college. And uh, the Nodib Yehuda himself, very briefly, was from 1713-1793, so he lived to be about 80. He was, for the first half of his life, a rub in Poland, where he's from. And then the second half of his life, around 1754 or so, he became the rabbi in Prague. He didn't have an easy time of it, but he managed with his amazing personality and the kachas and this and that and the other to make a, a gigantic impression. So again, he was the rabbi in Prague from, let's say, 1754 to 1793, about 40 years. So he was a Roman Prague in the 1750s, 1760s, 1770s, and 1780s and early 1790s. Dates matter. What can I tell you? Don't matter to you. But they matter, okay? It's a difference, like I said before, if you went to Lakewood and lived there in 1920 or 1960. It makes a difference. Now, in the case of Nodib Yehuda, so uh, this son of his, he had, uh, hmm, he had three sons and five daughters, if I remember correctly. Three sons and five daughters. Uh, and the oldest son went into business. Yaakov, Yaakov, they call him. As a, a Galtzianer talk, instead of Yankel, you say Yaakovka. Um, and uh, I don't want to get too slept down in the note of Yehuda, because it'll take me forever, forever. I'm going to concentrate on the son. But the father, Bicheskel Landau, was a rogue in Poland, in Yampol. And then he got this job, after all, a lot of politics in Prague. And uh, this hero today we're talking about, Shmuel, was, I think, the second son, I believe. And um, he was born in Poland still. But he was like four or five years old when they moved to Prague. So he spent his whole life in Prague. Here's somebody who lived to be 84 years old, so almost all of it, except for the first four years, was in Prague. So he's a Prague guy, as opposed to the older children who weren't. And the father was 37 years old when he was born. That makes a difference. All these things matter in the history business. You know, all the little details that the public is an interest in, they said, just tell me stories. Just tell me my soul. That's not history. You have to understand when and where. What can I tell you? And so, you know, in other words, if he's 37 years old, that means he's growing up when his father is in his 40s and his 50s. It's just interesting. Now, in other words, his father was 57 when he was 20. So, this son, Shmuel, our hero, therefore grew up and lived in Prague with his parents uh, all of his life. Uh, he got married and all that, but I mean, he lived in parents all his life. So, unlike the other children who moved elsewhere, or for one reason or another weren't like that, this one was. And that means he learned by his father. And uh, he spent all of his life. But how old was, was he when the father died? He was born in 17, so he was uh, 43. I'll give you an idea. So, the first half of his life, he lived to be 84. Lived, so, if I can use the word, shadow of his father. And then, notably, he was a, a remarkable person, obviously. Uh, and... He sort of excelled in everything he did, even though he had great uh, uh, challenges, but he was able to deal with them. And so, Nodib Yehuda, I was sort of like, I wrote that he was the, uh, the archetype, you know, like the, the model of the successful uh, traditional rabbi of old. Uh, in halacha, in agarata, in uh, politics, in Gemara, like the Tzlach and all that. As a Rosh Hashiva, you know, he had uh, 400, uh, achieved 400 students, gave four a day. He was a superman, okay? Plus, he was tall, dark, and handsome. 
Nerdy Hill was apparently was like six two, six three. He was unusually good looking, like a movie star. This we know because we have the secret police reports from the Austrian police who spied on him and they call him Frauengott. He's like a, a god for the women. In other words, he's so tall, dark and handsome that the women are swooning when he walks in the street, even though he was a, a super from person. So he had like everything going for him. And he had a model marriage. A model marriage. You should read his history for his wife. And we did from many other sources. That they really had a unusually happy and successful marriage. So he grew up in a normal family, if I can use that term. Positive uh, parental uh, situation. Now, that means that uh, he really was a product of his father's teaching. Uh, which means uh, the uh, learning, the stav lumdus. Uh, you know, like the Salach and all that, uh, the, the, the Pesach Halacha, because the Nod of Yehuda, which is eight or 900 Shubas, uh, is uh, a chilek of what the Father got every day. So if you're if you're Cheskel Landau, really, starting in the 1750s, every day there's letters from all over the world, you know, with all these Shilas. And if you read the Nod of Yehuda, it's very personal. You said, I didn't have time. <laughs> I just read something the other day. A guy sent a bad Nita Shila, and Nod of is apologizing, you know, you just sent it to somebody, dropped out of my house before Shabbos with a shliach, and I didn't think it was a big deal. Now it's after Abdullah, I'm opening up. It's, oh my God, i got to answer you right away. <laughs> you know, it's, it's real life. You understand? And uh, therefore, he's going to be a chip off the old block or try to be. Now, I said before, it depends when and where you live. The story of the Nod of Yehuda, and therefore his son, is one in which, from the Yiddish guy perspective, and from the Gemara Lumdus perspective, the first half was better than the second. The Nodebut was born in 1713, that's way back when, in Poland, before modernity, Haskola, government intervention, any of that stuff existed. And he grew up in the Chloe's of Brody, which was a super kolil, and that was the world in which he had problems with Shabtai Tzviism and stuff like that. But you didn't have problems, as they say, with left-wing phenomena. However, when he became Roman Prague, Prague's a different situation. Prague, uh, and pay close attention to what I'm about to say. Prague was the capital city of what they call Bohemia. Bohemia itself was a, a, a kingdom within the Austrian Empire. The, there used to be something called the Empire of Austria. It, it's, I'm going to be a little bit technical here, I apologize. There used to be a royal family called the Habsburgs. Their official title was the House of Austria, House Ostreich. Which means, way back in the 1200s, the guy was the Archduke of Austria. So, it's not that the Austrians rule anything like the Romans did, but the family of nobles who happened to be in charge of Austria achieved, uh, acquired a lot of land. And eventually became the Holy Roman Emperors. And it was like a tradition for hundreds and hundreds of years that every time it was the Holy Roman Emperor, it's Habsburg. Okay, there was like one exception in the 1740s. Uh, other than that, they're all the Holy Roman Emperor. The Holy Roman Emperor was the official ruler of Germany, uh, under the religion and under the Messias. Although, you know, the, the different German states didn't really listen to him. On the other hand, the Holy Roman Emperor had his own karka, what you call today Austria, what you call today Hungary and Slovakia and some other areas. And there was a big thing called the, the, the Kingdom of Hungary. And then another thing called the Kingdom of Bohemia, which is Bohemia Moravia, the capital is Prague. Bohemia was the number one Jewish community. Uh, Prague was definitely the number one Jewish community in the 18th century. They had 11,000 Jews. That's gigantic. 
that's at the time when, when, when the Vilna had like two or 3,000 Jews in the time of the Groh. So it's very big. They had 10 shuls and by 50 shtibbles. That's It was a, it was a rocking, rocking place. Uh, now, Prague was under the rule of this dynasty. They were super-duper Catholic and Catholic in a very bigoted way that, you know, you do allow the Jews there, but the Jews have to be degraded. You understand? And this is part of what they call the Counter-Reformation, the early modern history. And uh, the Jesuits were in charge. And all I can tell you is the Jews had a difficult time. And the four rulers, really three rulers, the, the Leopold I was there for 50 years, and then uh, Charles VI, with an interval, was 30 years, and Maria Theresa, we'll see in a minute, was for 40 years. I mean, for 100 years, there was only two, three people ruling the whole doggone thing. And they were very anti-Semitic. Uh, Maria Theresa even expelled the Jews from Bohemia at one point. I spoke about this a couple weeks ago, I don't remember what context. And then she let him back, but she gave him very heavy taxes, and all kind of stuff like that. Okay, now, uh, in the first half of the Nodebihuda's time in Prague, first 20 years, let's say, approximately, or so, 20, 25 years, so the government was simply old-fashioned, Catholic, bigoted, anti-Semitic. No, you, you, can, you can work with that. It's not easy. And he always complains in his sermons about the heavy tax and all the rest of it, which, of course, is never the fault of the empress. It's always our fault. He always put because he wasn't stupid, and he's not going to say anything that could be reported to the authorities. One of the things about the Nodebi Huda was, and his son, was they were very careful not to uh, be anything other than super loyal in their public declarations to the uh, to the authorities. Because, uh, first of all, that's what a from Jew is. And second of all, anything other than that, they get in big trouble. Uh, keep that in mind for our story. Now, uh, so if you read the speech of Notre Dame, you think the Austrians were Gavaldic, where the opposite was the case. But he had to kiss up to him. This is the Gaulus. This is the Gaulus. One has to know how to read the Notre Huda and his writings to know whenever he complains about Ishmael, he really means the Christians, the Austrians. You know, this is how you have to, what's the right word, decode a lot of the language of the rabbis in the old days. They couldn't talk plain and, and, and up front. Nor can our hero. And, but uh, the Jews were Jewish. And you still have the old-fashioned, autonomous, coercive communities of the real Kehillah. Uh, to hold 11,000 Jews together is very hard. And I won't say the, the community was from, but not the way you think. You think from is now like in, uh, you know, I don't know, B'nai Brock or something like that. Nah, it's from in the old days sense, which is officially everything's Orthodox. And, um, you know, there, there were a lot of yeshivas. And the Levinator was a high level. But there were plenty of people in the community, you know, that were Kal Shabakalim. That's how it always was. Uh, you always had problems with Znus. Uh, you always had problems with, uh, what shall I say, not keeping Shabbos and the Yom Tov improperly, Kashrus questions. The, to read the sermons of the great rabbis of Prague of the 15th, 1700s is to read a whole shopping list of, uh, you know, faults and, and bad things that people do. But that was the old world. We're all Jewish. We're all part of the Gila. Some are on the extreme right. Some are on the extreme left. Some of you guys are losers. And, you know, just, it's funny. Read the Nota Behuda speeches about talking in Shul. He said, I scream at them. I talk to them. I stand next to them. Nothing helps, you know. <laughs> Sounds very contemporary. Okay? Now, in the second half, so when our hero is growing up in the first 20 years or so, 
25 years of his life, maybe 30. So you still had um, the situation I just described, which is that things were from, um, you had problems with, uh, like I say, Kal Sheba columnists <laughs> and uh, boys and girls issues. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, these are the faults of the old school. People go to coffee shops on Saturday morning before they go to show. You know, many books have been written about the social history of the Jews of Prague and the problems they have. And, of course, chasanas are too lavish and, you know, all that stuff. But there wasn't a principled, I repeat, a principled uh, deviation away from traditional Judaism. Now, then things changed. Around 1780, the Empress Maria Theresa was a super from Catholic who hated Jews, but she kept the status quo. She died and her son, Joseph II, became the emperor. When Joseph II became the emperor, he was determined, to the best of his ability, to change the Jews. And he succeeded, unfortunately. And so he said, I'm going to give the tolerance patent, the edict of toleration, which I will, I will give some concessions to the Jews. He's up a little bit, but I want quid pro quo. And you guys have to start assimilating. And uh, without going through too many details, he did. It worked. Um, now, nobody would have hated this, and he tried to fight it, and all that stuff, but he was not successful. And I'm sorry to say that the main reason that he wasn't successful is he didn't ha- they didn't have his back. His own Balabatim didn't agree with him, so many of them. Now, a community of 10,000, it's not easy to get that kind of consensus. So I'm sure half the community, or maybe more, maybe more, sided with the Nodabi Huda. But all it takes is a big chalik, especially the richy riches, you know, who have government connections, to side with the modernization programs. And that is what happened. So he's screwed by his own balabatim, to put it in, in, in blunt terms. Uh, I'm going to give you the details, but that, that's what happened. And so in the last 13 years of his life, Nodabi Huda, when he was... Uh, in his 70s, I guess. Uh, he died at 80. Uh, he had a tough time because the imperial government, the Austrian gov- the government of the emperor, uh, first took away the coercive power of the Jewish community. Then they forced down his throat that they should have a Jewish public school system in which they teach Lumure Chol. And then he uh, and, and put in a draft so the boys get drafted in the army. You know what that means. And uh, and things like that. The whole the whole litany of these things. So our hero grew up in his thirties, in a situation where things were stickle falling apart. Okay. Now the note of Yehuda being a virtuoso, he tried to straddle. You know, let's put it this way: he did the best he could with some degree of success in retarding and arresting these developments, but he couldn't stop it. He could not stop it, and mainly because Zumbalabatim was there. So that means that you're dealing with a, uh, what's the right word, a perfect storm. On the one hand, the regime is out to make the Jews more European. Uh, the emperor wanted them to speak German, and he wanted them, to, he wanted, basically wanted them to be like going as much as possible. That was the, the agenda. And the Jews themselves, there, there came a time, for a whole bunch of reasons, when these ideas appealed to them. This is exactly when the Haskalah hit, and Moses Mendelssohn published his famous Chumash, with the Hebrew and German, and uh, his, his peerish, and uh, other famous Moskilm around that time, Naftali Hertz Wesley. And um, I, I'm saying this for a very important reason. When the, when, what do you call when the Mendelssohn published his, uh, his Chomish over a number of seven years, notably he was very opposed. Uh, very opposed. But uh, there's nothing trace in Mendelssohn's Chomish. You get it? 
It's actually from. But it's what we call modern orthodox, but totally from. Uh, but the very enterprise itself was going to take away from Gamar, 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 and that is what Mendelssohn wanted. And so to know Yehuda, that was terrible. But you'll see in a minute, as years pass by, his son, Shmuel and others, said, no, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good thing to have. But that's simply a sign that, that the goalposts had moved. And things moved so schwach that what was considered trafe earlier was considered kosher later on. Uh, I'll get to that a little bit later. Now, um, so our hero, therefore, you know, he grew up, he got married, all this kind of stuff. And he was a big Talmud Chacham. And since he liked learning, because he did have that nature, and he wasn't into business the way his older brother was, because Yaakov went back to Poland, became a super wealthy guy in Brody. Uh, Brody was a big headquarters of Ir Malaya Chacham Basofrim. And so he had the life of Riley. You know, he can engage in, in large-scale business enterprise and make a lot of money. And he had a belt of people to talk to in learning. And so he had Tor Gedul The brother I'm talking about, Shmuel, lived in Prague. The notary who himself wasn't poor, but he was a big sadik. He gave all the money away to the poor, you know. Uh, he had a salary, no question about it. But, you know, they weren't rich, rich. So the son grew up, and um, he helped his father in the writing. And then, you know, and he helped his especially in the last 10 years, his health started to fail. He had good health until he was like in the seventies, and then not. So Yerushalmi was there, and you know, helps him write the tzlach, you know, and helps him give the shiurim. And as time went by, and the health really failed, Nehudavihuda said, "Listen, my yeshiva. Now, hear closely. This is my yeshiva. It's not the community's yeshiva. It's my yeshiva. So you take over, meaning you give the shiurim every day, because the father couldn't do it." Or he could do it when health permitted. I've seen that in my lifetime. You have a Rosh Yeshiva who unfortunately runs into bad health and he can't give the shear every day or every week. And you know, he asked that someone else. And once in a while he can show up. Once in a while he can show up. That was the story of Nodi in the last 10 years of his life. Uh, his eyesight started to fail. You know, I'll touch the as we know. Now, um, happened slowly, but happened for sure. And so, Shmuel, I want you to see what a Talmachachim he was. The guy's in his 30s. And he's giving the daily, to use the language of today, the daily Iyun Shir at different uh, levels, and the daily Bekiya Shir, and the daily Shulchan Aruch Shir. You see what I'm saying? Filling in for his father all the time. So this is a, totally a Bar Hachi, correct? Somebody who's able to knock out the Shiurim, knew the Lamdas end, and knew the Halacha end, and knew the other stuff. So he's actually a very impressive person. When uh, this Emperor Joseph II died in 1790, was succeeded by his brother, Leopold II, who wasn't as harsh on the Jews, but on the other hand, he would not give in and rescind any of the uh, enforced reforms. And the next emperor, who took over in 1792, uh, Francis Franz, who was a real mamzer and a half, he was there for like 45 years or something, I mean, he was there for a very long time. And, uh, you know, he, he really was anti-Semitic. So, uh, but anti-Semitic in the old Catholic sense. The Jews can be Jews, um, but, uh, you know, they have to be degraded, as I said before. They're here on sufferance. They have to be of service. And uh, he was in favor that the Jews should modernize, in the sense, modernize meaning become more like Goyim. Uh, it's a kind of acculturation, assimilation continuum. This is the Messias in which these guys lived. And so the Nehudi Huda did not have the liberty, nor did his son, ever to say, I think all these anti- I think everything's moving in an in, in anti-Torah direction. I think that 
everybody should fight against the public school. I think everybody should fight against the Mendelssohn. I think everybody should fight against, you know, trying to promote, uh, to use American terminology, college or things like that, or trade schools for the youth. These are all unfirm. He couldn't say it. He was not allowed to. The police would arrest him. I'm serious. They would close him down. You don't understand. A lot of these gedolim, and there is an excellent example, they live in a police state, and therefore, they couldn't do like the Chassam Sofer and scream and this and that and the other. Chassam Sofer was in Hungary, where conditions were different. Where Nodabihuda lived, it was a police state, in the sense that the state wishes to police every aspect of life, Litoelis Arabim, ostensibly, and these are the rules of the game. That's why you find in Nodabihuda, he's always writing, when I say Goyim, I don't mean the Goyim here, because they're wonderful, you know. I mean the Goyim on the moon, right? You know, that kind of thing. This is how he had to live. It's part of his a godless, and he was able to dance with eggs for 40 years. But it was a tough business. Now, um, and I might throw in that the French Revolution started in 1789 during all this period. And the Nodabihuda died in 1793, okay? And by the way, uh, because this is the Corona era, it's very fascinating. He died during some kind of a magefa, which used to happen all the time. Tell me what medicine was like in those days, you know? So Prague used to have one magefa after another. That was just part of life. And this magefa took off these people, and that magefa took off those people. As far as I know, it's very possible that he uh, that he died in a magefa. You know, maybe a typhus epidemic, a cholera epidemic, a measles epidemic. I don't know, you know, one of those things. The reason I say is because uh, his Talmud Muvuk, or maybe I should say one of them, because... Why wasn't his son his Talmud Mubuk? But uh, the Tuvimiyav, Elazar Flecklis, who I also like, has um, a very famous Hespit for music. He was the rabbi friend of the 1790s. And he says over here that uh, now, we, that he says, I can't give a Hespit because circumstances don't allow it. Mamish like in the Corona. I just want to read you this very quickly. Viniskayim Bonamikrushakosu. This is like it says in the book of Yecheskel in the Bible. Ben Adam, hinini lokech mimcha es machmanei necha b'magefa, v'lo tispod, v'lo sivke, v'lo savab demecha. Hear what it says? That you're going to take somebody away in a magefa, and the mele, there won't be in his painim. Ofen shalotuchel aspidol of kosa kedekayos. It's going to happen that someone will die in a situation where he can't have a funeral because it's the COVID epidemic. It can't have a hesper for the same reason. And immediately, by medical rules, they had to take him out of the Jewish ghetto and bury him right away. And we didn't do what we'd ordinarily do for a distinguished rabbi in a godal ador, which is, like the Gemara says, you know, you stop every few feet and every street, and you make a separate hesper over there. We had to rush the body out. Hoi, hoi. Ubechol, chutzes hesped marvabal kabit. We couldn't do that. Ve'en ha'ashem u'tali banum. It's not, you know, because we don't want to, but in other words, it's because, as I said before, ozlas yodenu. Now, I actually thought once it was because of anti-Semitism. I made a mistake. It's because of a corona, you know, because it was some kind of an epidemic. Now, that means the father died. Okay, listen closely. The Nur Behuda had been elected by the Jewish community and confirmed by the government, because that's what you needed, both, 
to be the chief rabbi of Prague and the chief rabbi of Bohemia. That's an official position. He was Av Bezin of Prague and Av Bezin of the whole kingdom of, of Bohemia. That gave him a certain power and authority, at least under the old system when he had the autonomous courts of communities, and he was a brilliant uh, filler of that role. Shine. But it was known to the Austrian government that he was very old-fashioned and conservative. He didn't approve of college. He didn't approve of Mendelssohn. He didn't like the Jews dropping Yiddish and picking up German because that's assimilation, which he was right. All those kind of things. He didn't, he didn't approve of Jews changing their dress and so on and so forth. All those kind of things, which the government wanted for bad reasons, obviously they knew that Rabbi Landau uh, is opposing now, they respected him because he knew he had this worldwide reputation. And even though they were anti-Semitic, they respected him. But they didn't like it. When the Nod of Yehuda died, so the government said, and the Jewish community, unfortunately, said, we don't want to elect the chief rabbi of Prague. And certainly not a Bohemia. We don't want such a powerful rabbi. Now, that's disgusting, but that's what happened. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? So the, 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 the rich people in the Kehillah we, we don't like somebody who can be a rub and possibly get in our way of running things. We want to be the little Hitlers, the little dictators of the community of Prague. And combined with that, the government didn't want it. And so afterwards, when Nodavihuda died, they pretty much put out the thing, it's not going to be a successor. Now, our hero had obviously wanted, for totally understandable reasons, to be the successor to his father. After all, he's like Yeshua Benun. You know, he arranged the Sasaf Salim. He knew all the Shiurim. I mean, who knows the father better than anybody else? And everybody knew that with the Nota Behuda, you got a world-class a winner. You get what I'm saying? Like, Rebekah was known throughout the world. It was a big source of pride for the Jewish community of Prague, even though they gave him grief, uh, which always happens. Uh, so, But the son, basically, his hopes were dashed. And it was an unbelievable disappointment. And he never got over it. Moreover, Things got very petty because uh, if you're not going to have an Olive Basin, a chief rabbi, so how's the Kehillah going to operate? Uh, now, I repeat, the government had deprived the Kehillah of real Basin in power a few years earlier. That really broke the heart of the Native Yehuda. You know, their Chosha Mishnah power. I mean, you can come like in America. If two people agree with arbitration, you can, you know, do it that way. But they didn't have the power that they once had for hundreds and hundreds of years which is that Prague was like a, a headquarters of Chosha Mishpat, you know, in the old-fashioned way. That was not the case anymore after the middle 1780s. And so uh, things were going downhill. And the worst part of it is that I would say Rove of the people in Prague was like, okay, you know, well, we don't have a cheap rabbi, you know, like that. And uh, this was bad. So it was a upgeschwach kite of the Rabbonus, which therefore reflected itself, and perhaps was a reflection of, the diminished respect for old-fashioned rabbinate, uh, which carried with it such a heavy commitment to Lima Torah. The Nod of Yehuda and people before him, you understand, ancients, a hundred others, have been personifications of the ideal of the high-class Lima Torah, and it was something cool, something heavy, not only is the word sexy, but it was something, you know, really in, uh, and gave a covenant turn of prestige. This now began to diminish because you have this perfect storm. You have the government policies. You have the Haskalah, which was already penetrating into uh, Prague. Why? Because a lot of people say like this. 
there's more out there than Gemara, 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 and there was. Uh, you know, there's, there's Tanakh, for example, there's Duktuk, the Jewish history, there are things like that. Uh, now, theoretic, theoretically, they're not wrong. Um, there are things other than Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. The problem is, as we know from today, I've mentioned many times, nothing else works as, as a glue. You get it? Nothing works as a glue. If you don't have a, a, a community heavily committed to Gemara, 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 uh, as reflected, you know, in the Lakewood Dafyomi, things like that, uh, then the other things fall apart. It shouldn't, but that's the way it goes. Theoretically, it shouldn't, but that's the way it goes. And so, all these things together meant that from already 1790s on, for the next 40 years during the lifetime of our hero, every year there are fewer guys in the yeshivas. There are still yeshivas. And for the next 10 years, next 20 years, it'll be pretty stark. Next 10 years after that, it's there, it's stark, but it's weaker. Next 10 years after that, it's noticeably weaker. Fewer, fewer guys. Now, even in America, we've seen cases here and there of yeshiva that has a hot moment and a cold moment. There are times when a particular yeshiva has a, is busting at the seams, and other times when they are not busting at the seams, and the number of bachar men are very small. And so, you know, there's a rise and decline, like the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. It could be rise and fall of this yeshiva. Yeshiva. I'm telling you that from 1793 to 1834, when our hero died, there was the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, you know, decline and fall of the, the Torah stuff. It was there, and you still had people, and you had very impressive types. Uh, the problem also is that um, you had squabbles and fights among the Talmud Chacham themselves for, what shall I say, the scraps. Uh, for, you know, for, for, for the few positions that were out there. It was very undignified, and whenever it's a public squabble, the Kavadah Torah goes down. Now, our hero, let's put it this way, so there's not going to be a chief rabbi, but there is a basin, because there was still a Kahil. Now, the basin had the power once, had, but it had power, some degree. And uh, in German, it's called the Uristen. Now, Prague actually has a very, very interesting history of basin development. There's a book, one of my old favorites, from Simcha Asaf, I used to read long ago. It's called Bote Din Vesidreim, something like that. It's a wonderful source book. And over the centuries, Prague had what we would call appeals court, a little court, a penny, penny ante court, you know, all different types, which shows you how well developed the halachic uh, tradition was and the Kehillah tradition was in Prague in the old days. But now things are upgeschwacht, as I said before. And so, the import, the highest basin, what they call the appeals court, Apelantin in Germany, they call it, so we, would, we would call today the most important basin in the town. That's going to be the highest position. So who, who, should, who should be there and, and what's the pecking order? Who's the, uh, shall we say, the head of the court? Who's number two? Who's number three? Who's number four? Now, in a note of view, this time it used to be five, Diana plus himself. But now the Austrians, the killer reduces it to three. And to make a, like I said before, to spare you all the Lashon Hara, for the next five, ten years, between 1790 and, I don't know, 93 and 1800, something like that, there was constant squabbles. Who should be number one? Who should be number two? Who should be number three? The Shmuel Landau said, I guess, I'm the Nodavir's son. I'm a Bar I should take, if I can't get the Shifra Rabbi, which is a Shandana a big Shandana I should at least be the Av of the Basin, in the sense that, you know, the, the first of the Uber-Uristen, the high uh, judges. Um, on the other hand, you had the uh, Tama Melech, which I spoke about some months ago, or Baruch Yetalus, who uh, he wrote the Sefer of the Pirish on the uh, 
Shamelch. And he said, no, I'm the Talmud Mubak. I know more than you. Which wasn't true, but a very bitter thing to say. And uh, you had Berlazer Fleckelis, who, had, who really was, <laughs> who genuinely was the Talmud Mubak. That's a tricky relationship. I'm the son, and you were his close student. But I also was a close student. You know, how do you work that out? Now, in a perfect world, in a perfect world, uh, Shmuel Landa would have been named as chief rabbi, and uh, Reflectless would be ahead of the Rosh Basin, and this, you know, the, uh, uh, each one would get a position fitting for this authority. But because of the circumstances I just described, uh, the, there wasn't a, a multiplicity of high positions. There was very few, and so they start fighting with each other and writing pamphlets against each other, and you know, like he said. Like he said to you, Barchietlis, everything you know you stole from plagiarized mother's farm. And he said, no, I didn't. And then uh, and, Fleckless got into it. It's a whole bunch of mess. Fortunately, all this stuff is written up only in German, so you can't get at it. Uh, but anyway, this, this is the way it went. Now, that simply added to the perfect storm. You have the rise of the Haskalah, which people are interested in things other than Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. You have the the interest in Muslim Mendelssohnism. Mendelssohn was a from guy in a certain way. I, I'm saying that for a reason. Remember what I just said. Uh, there was the anti-religious Haskalah, which the Pragmaskilim attacked. Uh, that's a long thing by itself. And it was a very confusing situation. And then you have the government trying to move things to the left. And then you have the local uh, Richie Rich guys who are divided into different groups. The older Richie Rich is still thought in old in old categories of thought. And so, like I mentioned Ronsberg a couple weeks ago, but Sal Ronsberg, he was liked by a certain old Richie Rich guy, whose name was Ku, <laughs> who, who made him like a little base matters, like a little Kolel uh, in his mansion. But other Richie Rich guys now are thinking, no, well, I want to know Shakespeare, you know what I mean? I want to know, uh, you know, uh, secular culture. And it was not good. So... There was a lot of competition, and, uh, you know, it got to be everybody wears different uniforms. So there was a competition between Shiva A, B, and C, and D. In one place they wore, uh, what shall I say, um, Hasidic-looking hats. That's the best I can, round hats. That was a sign of how super frump they were. Another place was a stickle more modern and wore a three-corner hat. And in other places, like Shmuelanda's Yeshiva, though were very modernish, they wore a stovepipe hat, a cylinder hat. You, you you see what I'm saying? You know, there's a lot of fighting among the, the London. And all this helped little by little unto to Grubben to bury the glorious tradition that had been in Prague beforehand. Added to everything I just said was the fact that when the Nodabihuda died, so the the Frankists this is it's not Shabtai Tzvi, it's not, but it's it's like that. Right? Uh, it's too complicated to explain. All I can say is, is a, 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 a movement that was heretical and was actually weird. These guys were like into all kinds of sex crazy things. And the way that the Sabatians were accused of it wasn't true. But the Frankists, it was true. Uh, and uh, there had always been these families in Prague. And even in Nodeby Huda's time, before, remember all the fights with Jonas and Apeshitz who had been before him. And Nodeby Huda's time, he every year cursed them. And, you know, he uh, deprecated them. But everybody knew, really, 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 that this mishpacha and that mishpacha and that mishpacha and that mishpacha are, uh, you know, let's put it this way, questionable. Who knows what they do behind closed doors? And because he wanted not to have open warrant in the community, the Nenebi Huda, 
Now, if it was up to him, he'd kill them all. But he, I tell you, he lived in a police state. And so he had to walk on eggs. So he, he publicly uh, um, stigmatized them as heretics. But they never actually did anything to them. Uh, they would curse them every year. But then, you know, these guys outwardly pretended to be from. So it was an extremely complicated situation. Uh, with the death of, and and by the way, there was a whole outbreak of this, like in some yeshivas and place like that, shortly before the note of Yehuda died, and he called him in, and he said, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And they said, oh no, we're, we're not like that at all. And he like believed them, let's put it this way, being old and decrepit, he had to believe them. This is all written up, by the way, in a book by Eblazo Flecklis, called Avis Yonason, which has just been reprinted uh, in very nice edition by that uh, that outfit in New York, whatever it's called, that's putting out the, the Flecklis stuff. He's got all the details in there, Avis Yonason. It was a really messy mess. And uh, in Frankist ideology, it was a guy named Frank. His name wasn't Frank. They called him a Frank. You know, like in Israel, they call it a Frank. It's not a nice name. So they called, there was a guy, Yaakov, and he was from Turkey. So they called him Yaakov the Frank. You know? So they called him the Frankist. Uh, and he had a daughter, and he was a charlatan beyond belief. But he had his followers among these uh, families. And um, I don't know how many families. It wasn't a small number in Prague particularly, and they were well-to-do. And obviously, these are guys who are not being Hasidim in the sense of being from uh, the opposite. They're antinomian. Uh, behind closed doors, they don't keep anything because they're against it in principle. Uh, you know, this is the beginnings of the beginnings of the beginnings of what became later the Reform Movement. At least that was the thesis of Professor Katz. Anyhow, the Yaakov Katz. Now, um... So here's my point. In the uh, Ashkafa of the Frankist, the, the, the year 1800 will see the Mashiach coming. The Mashiach will be Frank or his daughter, but the Mashiach is going to come. And uh, they got all agitated, all the rest of it. And all three of our protagonists were fighting with each other like cats and dogs all the time. Uh, Rashmol Landau and Chumayava uh, and uh, Saul Bronsberg and this one, that one, the other one. I mean, not Bronsberg, he didn't fight. Uh, who was it, the Bar Yetilis, uh, they all stopped fighting each other and combined to declare a holy war against the Frankists in their community. And they made a bunch of speeches, and he got the oil and riled up. They made a riot. They wanted to kill these people. And the Frankists called in the police. And the police sided with the Frankists, because who gave you a right to start a riot without asking us? And uh, they arrested the Rabbonim. Shmuel Alanda was thrown in jail. The Yetilis was thrown in jail. The Chuba Meyab was thrown in jail. You understand? It's it's a little bit uncomfortable to think about this when we're reading about the riots in uh, Brooklyn now during the coronavirus and all this other crazy Michigas and these guys who were uh, going nuts and uh, breaking the law and defying the governor and the police and all the rest of it. Maybe in America you can get away with it. I don't believe even that. But in the Austrian Empire, in, the, in Russia, you ain't getting away with that. You understand? It's important to understand our gedolim of past usually lived in some kind of police state situation. People just do not comprehend that. We're used to thinking America, Israel, you can do whatever you want. It's a FKRS. There's a freedom of speech and all the rest of it. They did not live in times of freedom of speech. And so when they went too strong against the Frankists, uh, the Frankists were able to say, listen, we're not the bothering public uh, uh, order. These guys are attacking us. Um, they're breaking the law. And they had to back down. You know the firm had to back down. Because otherwise, you're dealing with a dictatorship. They'll arrest the rabbi, throw him in a concentration camp. They really would. Do you guess where the concentration camp was 
under the Habsburgs in the 1790s and early 1800s. You're going to laugh when I tell you. The concentration camp for political prisoners was Munkach, <laughs> which was an outpost at the end of Hungary over there. Uh, and they would close down shuls. I mean, you know, there's a Catholic government. Don't do anything. And so the firm had to back off. So as a result of everything I just said, the bitter feelings had to be buried. And our hero simply had to put up with the fact that uh, he'll be a member of the basement. He won't be number one. I think he was number two or number three. Uh, the Chuva Miyah will be number one. Not chief rabbi, just the first number one over Eurist, number one on the basin. They divided the Tafkinim among them. I remember that Chuva was in charge of the orphanage. Uh, Shmuel Lander was in charge of the Kashras, you know, that kind of thing, right? And little by little, when the others died, then you move up one. So our hero um, was always number two to the Chuvmiava until the Chuvmiava died in 1825, 26, something like that. And then he moved into position number one. But by then he was in his 70s. You see what I'm saying? So it's a very frustrated life. Okay? Now, he still ran his father's yeshiva, but he didn't have 400 guys the way the father used to have it. It went down, down, down. The years I'm talking about, the 1790s, early 1800s, that's the years of the French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars. Austria lost a bunch of wars one after another to, um, to the French. Prague was captured a couple times here and there, whatever. And uh, it was tumultuous times. Uh, now, like I said before, it must have been... I mean, we know, he writes, it was a tremendous uh, disappointment to him. Okay? Uh, but on the other hand, this is what is Parnoso. He says the community gives me a decent salary, which they did. You know, to be on the top basin, you got a decent salary. But, you know, you're kind of dependent on the others. And the, the, since there was a, not a strong rabbinate and not a charismatic Rosh Hashiva-ism, uh, so Prague drifted slowly, slowly, slowly in a left-wing direction. You couldn't stop it. Now, uh, this is simply due to the fact that Prague and the Nerebihuda were always, uh, can I use the term Torah only? <laughs> Get it? Uh, there's a certain type of person, I was brought up this way, certain type of, the only thing that matters is the learning. There's no ideology in addition to the learning. Um, if you want to, are you from Jew? That means you learn. I'm talking about Gemara. And uh, the less you do, the less from you are. That's all. I'm not interested where you're a strimal, that's all baloney. I'm not interested where you shuckle, that's all baloney. You know what I say? It's all baloney. The only thing that matters is whether you learn. I'm not interested if you, if you, uh, you know, uh, are a follower of this rabbi or that rabbi. It's all baloney. The only thing is whether you learn. That was Prague, and and uh, to a degree, that was known to be Huda. Now that's okay with me, but we know today, looking back in perspective, that Torah only was ineffective. In the modern era, you needed Torah plus an ideology. Okay, uh, you know from trial and error. You need Torah plus an ideology. Now, one ideology uh, was Hasidus. Uh, the Nodebuta was Misnagid. Uh, the Hasidim in the 19th century, after Prague fell apart, said, see, if you would have allowed uh, Hasidus into Prague, then it wouldn't be like that. It, it, it would still be from. There's truth to that, but there's also lies. The Austrians would never allow this. Anybody who started coming with Hasidish shtick, you know, people in the community would complain, and the government 
which wanted the whole community to move to the left, uh, would, have, would have closed them down, driven them out. You see? Um, now, um, in Lithuania, Torah Musser, you know, Torah and this, Torah and that, whatever you want to say. Uh, but it can't, it has to be Torah with an ideology. Today, you and I live in a world, whether you like it or not, or admit it or not, or whatever you want to say, it's not just learning. It's learning with an ideology. It's Torah with the Ated, you know what I mean? It's Torah with the Mishpacha. It's Torah with this, with this, with, with these Hashkafas, and those Hashkafas. We have now a self-conscious and proud and self-conscious uh, community. It's not only about going to Daf Yomi, all the rest of it. There's a whole bunch of attitudes and ideas that go along with it, without which the, 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 the firm wouldn't survive. You get it? The firm couldn't survive. Uh, every group has its own particular ideology. You got Lababish, you got the Lakewood, you got the, you know, this group and that group. Okay, even YU has ideology together with the learning. So nobody's deprecating the learning, but you need, in the modern world, in order to fight against the countervailing force of modernity to push everything to the left, you need some kind of, um, I don't want to say the word militant, but maybe I should, ideological stance, which pushes you against the left-wing tidal wave. You see? Now, that never happened in Prague. For example, they couldn't come out the way that some server says, Chodesh uh, Why is uh, uh, Haskell, when it was in the from type Haskell, why is it Haskell Menatoro? Uh, you know, it's, no, it's not. You, you, you get the point I'm trying to say? Uh, somebody wants to learn Chomish or Tanakh or Ivrit. Okay. I mean, it's not Osir. That's what a note of Yehuda would have said. Now, he would say like this. I think it's not as good a use of time as learning Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. But I'm not going to say it's Osir. Uh, as you know, others in the 19th century, as they seeing all this, as the Muslim Askel, they developed the whole ideology of, of basically, at least on the Hashkafa level, in one way or another. And, uh, and that kind of worked. I'm talking about in terms of sociological survival of the group. Prague, you never had this. They like knew too much and therefore were too uh, mellow, I guess, or something. I don't know what it is. And so uh, they just expected that, yeah, you can go into all kinds of things, but of course you'll put your main time into Gemara. Well, it, it didn't go like that. It did not go like that. And so little by little, the community moved, you know, into more and more, uh, I don't know what the way we're, weakness, perhaps I should say, shvach haikal, and, uh, and these rabbis couldn't stop it. You know, they tried, and made speeches, this and that and the other, but you already see which way the drift is going. So, it's not a, 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 a happy situation. At the same time, Rishon Molander was a big Talmachacham. He got Shilas after his father. Uh, a lot of these are collected in, um, as we'll see, in the Shiva Sion. You know, he, he was a Posig. He was a Talmachacham. He could have been the chief rabbi of Prague after his father, uh, but it wasn't in the cards, was it? It's not in the cards. Now, um, all these developments come together, and in the case of our hero, he's born in 1750, uh, so by, the, by 1800s, he's 50 years old. By 1810, he's 60 years old. He's not young. Um, he started to think now. Uh, well, let's put it this way. He's not going to have the career he wanted. Uh, but he's his father's son. Um, and the Nota Behuda himself, as we know, uh, published the Nota Behuda uh, in 1756 when he was about 50, 53, when the Nota Behuda was 53. 
And um, publishing Shalos and Shuvah is not easy because they weren't organized in, in piles and under subject headings, all the rest of it. It's a major work of editing. You, you don't appreciate it until you try it. Uh, and the Nehru Behuda wouldn't have done it except that he got scared. If you read the beginning of Nehru Behuda, you can find out. And there's a certain speech also he gave. What happened was there was a fire in his house. I'm talking about the Nehru Behuda. And uh, they rushed to help you know, save stuff in the fire. And a lot of people stole his uh, Kedushim that were you know buried away as, as part of the fire and they never returned it. And later on they started publishing under their own names. The plagiarism. That's what happens in Jewish history sometimes. There's a whole, uh, I could give a talk just on that. <laughs> but uh, it's, you know, the Geneva, it, it, it's happened. Okay? And that freaked him out. He says so. And therefore he undertook, at the age of 53, to organize this material and publish under the Nehru Behuda in uh, 1776. Now, the Nehru Behuda took off and, and, and spread all over the world. But you can ding Zichon when he says. It's, you know, the Nehru was amazing. Uh, because he is poskening by showing you the lumbus behind it. That's the part of the Nebuda. I think in any discussion of Charles and Schubert's literature, like it's the fir- it's easily the first five or ten you're going to come up, you know, with the name Nebuda. Now, uh, on the other hand, once he published this, so he exposed himself to uh, criticism, which he had no issues with. He was that type of guy. He didn't mind, you know. You know who the no, who's in care. I'm talking about the learning the alumnus. His his attitude was take your best shot. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm ready. You know, to fight you at any time. I mean, in a good way, not a bad way. You know, he didn't say, "Oh, I said this, therefore it's right." He didn't mind uh, responding to challenges. And so, first of all, he got a ton of responses. The Nota Behuda did of criticisms of his socks and his alumnus. I'm talking about academic criticism from other rabbis, there's nothing wrong with what I'm saying, right? There's no, nothing bad about it. This shows you people take it for granted, take, take it seriously. And he welcomed that, and he wrote answers, right? But he never published it. In addition to that, he was a rabbi in Prague for another 20 years almost. 17 years. So he had a lot of, a lot of other Shilas that he answered, in the late 1770s and, early, and, and the 1780s, early 1790s, till near he died. So, what I'm trying to say is like this. There's a ton of stuff there for a second volume of the Nehru Behuda, which, which the Nehru himself never published. Okay? Uh, on the other hand, to go through all the material was a jagundo labor. Uh, to, to separate things out. Let's say somebody wrote you five shallows and you inverted and you went off over here and, and this tangent, that tangent... I mean, it's a it's a gigantic enterprise. Um, let alone to understand all the lumbus involved over here. Uh, and so, his son, who was thirty three, went uh, forty three when the father died, was hesitant to undertake such a uh, a daunting uh, task, shall we say, uh, for the next uh, fifteen years of his life. Okay, I had to switch something here. Uh, what was I saying? The our hero was already, as I said before, his late fifties. Yeah, his late fifties. And uh, in the middle of all this, and a lot of wars going on, like I say, I don't want to bore you with the details. Austria was always involved in wars against Napoleon, always losing. Uh, so in in, uh, but he's sitting on top of this ton of manuscripts left over from his father, 
And uh, in 1809, I think, so he was close to 60 years old, he paid a visit to his brother in Brody, suddenly he traveled, which wasn't so easy in those days, from Prague to Brody, which is a, a distance. And uh, see, so he had two brothers that lived all their lives apart. And the brother, like, chastised him, he says, why don't you publish the father's stuff? You're there in Prague, and you have everything, and you were with him. And other people along the way, every time he met somebody, they say, don't you have more material from your father? He published his book in 1776. Anything with Nodi is going to be gold. And all this worked on him. And he said, you know, I'm going to do it. And he came back to Prague. And uh, money was there. I bet you the brother contributed. And uh, he undertook the daunting task of going through all the manuscripts, you know, all the papers left there by the father and organizing them and all the rest of it. And uh, and he published the second volume of Nodi Huda, the Madur Tignona. And he says over there that uh, doing this was a huge task of editing. So when you read the Madura Tignana, I want you to be very clear over here. You're reading a constructed work. It's not by the note of Yehuda. It's by his son. But it's using the father's material. Now, as you can be sure, knowing the relation between the two, that it's uh, faithful. But on the other hand, a lot of it is interpretive. Because, you know, you found, uh, you know what I mean, letters and manuscripts, and sometimes the words are matushtosh and uh, half sentences, you know how these things go. But on the other hand, who in the world knew better what the father was? I mean, he was present <laughs> when, uh, he's 26 years old when the Madura Kama was published. So he was present with the father when they dealt with all these Shilas. So, nevertheless, he says in the Hakdama to the, um, to the second volume, to Madura Tinyana, which everybody should read, it's just a very interesting document, that uh, it was a Vodas Perich. And doing this, he had his own Ha'aris. And that's why if you read the Madura Tinyana Nodvihuda, like I said before, it's not published by the father, it's published by the son. And moreover, it's edited by the son. So uh, it's not the same way as the father. Although anybody who knows how to read the Chubas Nodvihuda, you can tell when the guy's talking because the Nodvihuda has a very personal style. You, you get what I'm saying? He has his way of writing and talking. It's very charming, actually. It's very, very, very cool. That's a better word. Very cool. Uh, so you can tell. But nevertheless... Uh, you know, what was added in, what was added, added out, or, or the, the rough edges uh, you know, smoothened and things like that. And many times in the course of it, he wrote, Hakdamas mi ben I mean, Ha'oris mi ben Nothing wrong. No, as I'm seeing, my father said this and the lum, this and that thing. Uh, but, you know, uh, it occurred to me, such a, because here's a guy that was holding and learning every day. And here's a guy who was giving shiurim every day. I want to be clear about that. And he's sitting on basins. So, in other words, he, I'll repeat what I said before. It's a frustrated guttle, perhaps. He was a bar hockey, just didn't have the opportunity to express it. And so, uh, in the course of this, he says, and by the way, he's living in the time when the Haskalah is very powerful. Uh, he himself had certain muscular leanings, I'll talk about in a second. But, you know, obviously nothing in the non from sense. But, you know, it'd be unthinkable in other places, but not in Prague. And, uh, and he has this very interesting Akdam, and he says over there, He says, I've suffered a lot since my father died. You know, time and misfortune have hit me big time. Really? What does that mean? In other words, he, he had a job all the way through. The answer is what I told you. You understand? That's what I told you. And um, he says also, also, this I find particularly pathetic, not pathetic, but pathetic, uh, where he said, you know, uh, I have 70 chubas I'm sticking in myself that I wrote. 
Uh, and the reason is because, no, and he's living in Prague, see? But Prague's already not what it once was by 1810. It's uh, much abgeschwacht. There are those who are learning, there are no question, you know, there was like still a yeshiva world, but it's much weaker and much less than it had been once upon a time. And this is the sad reality of it. And, uh, and he basically says like this, if I would publish my own stuff, people would, wouldn't give me the time of day. Shamati Dibas Rabim Lemor, Chiburim Rabim, Asos Harbe and Kates. Enough Swarm Gnugshine. Now, to you and I, I don't think we say that. We say, if a guy publishes a safer, and if it's half decent, I'm interested in seeing what it is. Charles and Shubas, you know, I'm in the rabbi business. And if it's Kedushan, whatever, you know, let's see let's see what you got. Uh, by now, you have the Haskalah, and the Maskim say this, Nacha Bukhan Gemara, 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 Nacha Bukhan Halacha, Gnugshan, you know? And he says, Hishchiso uh, Dio, and they are, you're just a waste of, of paper and ink. Vakol Kul Yotso Leitzoni Hador Lil Og. And the Leitzoni Hador, that's a masculine, are always making fun of another safer. Velo Yivakru Bain Tov And they no longer care whether it's a quality safer or a, you know, a, a, let's say, see, an unqualified junk safer. You have those two. Vayakutsu Mneisro Mechibur Mechadoshim. And the Bnei Yisrael, now he means in Prague. The more modernish Jews. And nobody wants to buy it. They say, no, I don't want to buy another Sefer. Uh, and, and he says, you know, I'm not built in such a way like some Mechavers do. This is cute. That, you know, this is very common. Um, I get it. You get in the mail. Somebody writes a Sefer and sends you a copy. It's sort of like put a moral obligation to send them some money. You ever have that? I've got that. Uh, not that I send them money, but this, the idea is I send you a safer, therefore you should send me money. And he says, I can't do polite lies and just give everybody in my community a copy of the book and say, no, you know, no. Uh, and to say, I'm giving this book away totally as a gift. You have no obligation whatsoever to pay me for it, when we all know that's not true. And the, when the book arrives, it's like a klola. Because the guy knows he's hitting me up for money. And the guy doesn't want to lose money in pocket pay for a safer. Uh, see, he's his father's son. And he said, that would just cause a diminution in Kavod Torah. A guy hits you up for a safer, what do you think about him? You understand? What do you think about him? He's a schnar, he's a beggar. You see, uh, at the end of the day, it's all about money. Now, again, he immediately says like this, not in Prague, of course, which is baloney. I have a nice salary here. But nevertheless, nobody wants to see a new safer. But the Nota Behuda is an exception. My father's book, that people would pay for, because he was so great that everybody wants to copy that. And so I'm not going to publish my stuff. Um, what I'm doing is I'll publish my father's stuff and stick some of my stuff in it. So in the, in the Madura Tignona, you have uh, 70 of his, of the Chubas of the Sun. It says so. You know, Chubim Bena Mechaber. Says so, and he writes and he says, "I, I'm, you know, there's no cheating over here, no, no uh, faking." And uh, also, you have these he'oras. 
So those who are into Nodav Yehuda, like Rasuli was telling me we had this conversation, you know, uh, you see that, uh, let, let me put it this way, when you see quoted in Sfarim, the Nodav Yehuda says this, Nodav Yehuda says that, I'm just telling you right now, first of all, make sure whether it's Madura Kama Martiniana. And number two, when it's Madura Tinyana, make sure it's from the father, sometimes it's from the son. I'm not taking away from it, but there's a difference if you have a psak from the Nodav Yehuda, right, especially a controversial psak, or you have a psak from the son. The son doesn't have that much uh, power and cachet. Now, it bothered the son, as I'm trying to get across to you today, but that's simply part of the problem of being the, the, the son of a great man and not being able to, uh, you know, succeed to the father's position. But I'll say, you know, the... Uh, uh, you know, it's, um, if you've ever gone through any of them, you know, they're, they're good, right? Uh, I always tell people, the, the two that always come to my mind, uh, which every historian knows, even without learning, is um, the <laughs> very funny one about the fish. And nobody has a number of very interesting and controversial socks about fish. Um, one of them is this uh, Isling glass business that they use even now for beer, you know, that makes the color beer they take from the uh, tray for fish. And surprisingly, he said it was okay if you use it for the coloring. I don't remember exactly. The Vatakashas is everywhere. Uh, you know, talk about it. Go, go Google, uh, you know, Kashas fish and Starke and Nodabihuda and whatever, and you'll see it about and beer, and beer, because we use even today in beer. But the really controversial one, maybe the most, among, not the most, among the most controversial was with the sturgeon, uh, where um, this guy in southern Hungary, in Temeshvar, uh, there was a new fish. How do you know fish is kosher? You, know, you go by fins and skills. Not so posh. We don't simply today say, let me go out uh, uh, on a boat, and if I see a, a, something with fins and skills, I know it's kosher. It's more complex than that. So, uh, and, and describe what exactly is shot fins and what is shot scales. Now, this is in the Shulchan Aruch, you know, in your day, and uh, but when you see a new fish, you want to quote unquote get a sock. And uh, it's a famous story, very famous, that uh, I think a Talmud of the Nebuchadnezzar Hudas had a rabbi position in southern Hungary, which is far away at that time. And uh, he said, There's a certain fish over here in the river, and uh, I want to know if it's kosher or not. And he sent it to him. So he didn't get in the mail. I mean, how long did it take to get a wrapped up fish? Woo! Uh, I don't know how he did it exactly. But it came in the mail, the fish, and uh, it's cute because how do you know whether something is considered, uh, you know, a kosher fish or not, not a kosher fish? This is, as I said before, it's an additional chanark, isn't it? And the Ramah says that the uh, scales, uh, the, you know, you got, what does it say over here? Let me open it. Here uh, in Hochus Dogim, that's Pei Gimel in Yerodea. See, money Dogim is for Russian Batara. What's shot snappier? That's the fin. Who's the shot bow? You know, what it swims with, what guys with. Kaskeses, that's the scales. Haklipas hakvuasbo, that's the machaber. And the Ramah says, Vedafka shehin niklofim biyada bakleed. You have to be able to remove them by hand or with a cleat. Avalimiyav shalakalfami or dog, lo mikri kaskeses. And this thing didn't, the scales didn't come off. But Nodibiuda put it in some kind of chemical solution for a day or two or something like that. And after he put in the chemical solution, then he was able to remove them. So he said it's kosher. It was a little bit weird, but okay. Now he's in Nodibiuda. This really bothered the Frumvelt. 
I can't tell you. They were considered a very, uh, what's the right word? Very left-wing sock. But he was in Eretz Yehuda. So many of the, uh, and this is called the Sturgeon Controversy. Scarlet Sturgeon, whatever you call it. And many Gedolim disagree with him. There's nothing wrong with that. But Mordecai Benet and the others say, I know that nobody here says it. I respect him as a person, but he's wrong on this, and here's why. And there's a lot of alumnus. There is nothing in the world wrong with disagreeing with someone else, especially if you're a Bar-Hachi, or a matter of Allah. He makes his case, you make your case, as Vahe Vesufa, no problem. The problem is, the Nubi has such a big reputation, and the uh, modern Jews, the left-wing Jews, wanted to rely on this, uh-oh, we can eat it, that it bothered the right-wingers, the Frummies. And uh, as happens in the uh, Frum world, one of the Frum rabbis in Hungary uh, <laughs> said, came out with it, it bothered him so much that he came out with a thing, he said like this, actually, maybe who'd have said it at the beginning, but then changed his mind. And he told me personally that he changed his mind. Therefore, you can't rely on it. Okay? In fact, he told me to tell everybody he changed his mind. Now, is that true? Really? Imamus changed his mind? Uh, you, you, you see what I'm saying? And he only told you in a private communication? And this was like in 1780 or whatever. He didn't tell anybody else except you. And this rabbi in Hungary said, yeah, that's what it is. Uh, and uh, let's put it this way. All hell broke loose. And uh, <laughs> the... Uh, uh, how should I put it? After the death of the Nehru Behuda, I think that's what happened. He waited till the Nehru Behuda died, and then he put out the thing. You know, Harosa Lashakar Yarke Gedusa, and he waited for the father to die. And... Uh, Sure enough, eventually, it's a long, complicated story, because this reform rabbi, one of the very first reform rabbis, had been a Talmud of the Yehuda, one of the hundreds and hundreds of guys in Yeshiva, Aaron Choren, and he published these pamphlets defending the Sturgeon, and, you know, the Frum didn't want to hear that, like, I don't, I don't, I don't want your help, you know, but, uh, and that made the, the Haredim say, see, you know, look who you got on your side, it's a whole big mess, but the, the point is that we have in Chavtes, in the in the Ordea, where he where they say Mechtava he you know Higiani they ask him about all this, and he says it's true my father changed his mind, uh, and the and the Shmuel Landau says I guess what are you talking about? Tamanim shakasim alaso shadoni mori avi agon hader bame harazos. I'm I'm amazed that you say my father changed his mind, but siva malaso shlochi geres hadon alharav mitemesvar. And that he, my father, before he died, told you, you, this rabbi in Hungary, to send a letter to the other rabbi saying, I, I backed off on my heter. Yim chalim ha'loso, excuse me, shadav zeh sheker mochlet, you're a damn liar. <laughs> That's the only place I've ever seen that in this house and Jews. Uh, you know, zeh sheker mochlet knows what you just said isn't true. And the guy made, built this whole thing around that. Everybody knows what a big tzaddik my father was. He would never leave something like that just to somebody. Else. If he if he changed his mind, he would have said it. And he wrote and wrote and wrote. No, he was very big in, in, in sending letters, and he would have published a, a retraction. And the rav who sent him to shal in the first place was a, a former talmud of his, a ben pious. Anyway, it's a, it's, it's a lie. And then the guy said no. And, and he goes on to say, If I were you, I'd just shut up and walk away from this. Because you can't win. <laughs> You're not telling me. Right? 
And the base in the Prague were Blazer Fleckless, and you know, they all say this is a lie. Now, uh, that's a very famous thing from the sun. Uh, that's one I know. And the other one is kind of interesting. And again, I've seen it many, many times. Historians know about it. That has to do uh, with the issue of Argayim Mitzvah Valashitov. Benoch Mitzvah Valashitov. Right? Which, in simple terminology, means like you have a trinity or... That's not the right word. That's not exactly what it means. But something along those lines. You know, uh, this, that's a tosis in, uh, in uh, Sanhedrin and some other places where Abena Tom says you can do, you can do business with the Remember the Gemara says, Osir, Lodam Shiyasa Shutvisi Manachri, Shem Yishaivlo Tshuva, Yishaivlo Shavua, Benishva Avodazar Shalom. You cause the guy to swear by his God, and you know how to do that. And Rabbeinu Talmud famously says, "Well, uh, it's okay. I'll be I'll be some shemayim, but davracher lo ashkechon to also ligram achir v'lishatif." Which which was taken to mean. And there's another toast in Bechorus. So I don't want to get too technical. There's a it's a famous business where we have this statement. The Ramah says these words in um, in Archaim. In 157, I think, 156, where he says that, you know, so it's also for a Jew, you have to leave one God and one God with no exception to that. One God, that's it. No no ifs, ands, and buts, no helpers, no assistants, nothing like that, no subordinates. But a guy is not material in that. As long as he believes in God, even if he believes in one God who created the world, even if he has a couple of helpers and subordinates, even though it's wrong, of course, it's okay. And that was the basis for a lot of Piskei Aloha. It's brought down, like I say, by the Ramon and the others. And I remember Shmuel Landau, he's not the only one. He said, no, no, that's not what it means. It means, number one, you can't, uh, there's not an issue of causing someone to do it. And one minute. And more importantly, uh, it's in 145, 140, yeah, 148, all right? In Kufmem Chesen, in, in, uh, in Yeridea. Nearly Mashin is Pasha, Dover Zelomer, Ain Benay Noch, Muzar El Toos, Sharoba Tosus, and the Chorus elsewhere, the Nogin Lishtatim Monachri, that the people who did business deals with the government, then it comes to court and they have to swear and all the rest of it. And Alpizeb, Pasuk Haramon, and so on and so forth. Uh, but he's saying that's not what it means. What it means is. That you, uh, he's talking about Catholics, really. And so, guys, like this Yashka plus St. Patrick. You get it? So, in other words, they believe only in Yashka, but on the other hand, they also mention St. Patrick. So, that would be wrong for a Jew to do something like that. So going in that particular thing would be okay. Well, but to actually uh, worship a multiplicity of gods like the Trinity, uh, you know, that'd be also, and every Christian's into the Trinity. So uh, anyway, that that's often quoted um, in the literature. I've seen it many, many times from the Shmuel Landau. No, but there are other things as well. And uh, anyway, in 1811, he published the Madurat which of course took off 
And uh, as I said before, a lot of it is responsive by Nebuchadnezzar to the criticism of Nebuchadnezzar, and a lot of his new stuff. And uh, there you see the son, and and the son basically says, he says, um, I'm piggybacking on the father, and you know, I, I won't get no respect. But I don't mean it's in a bad way. He doesn't mean it in a bad way. But if I read as part of my father's stuff, everybody will, will give it the time of day. And that's true. That is true. Now, by this time, he was 60 years old. Um, as I said before, life had not turned out as he'd hoped. But he spent his whole life in Prague. In the next years, um, things got worse. And it's, it's sad that we find uh, that things were already so deteriorated that he gave Russia, in which he said like this, everybody should get the Mendelssohn Chumash. Now, what does that mean? I'm going to use an example that I shouldn't use, but I'm going to use it anyway. The Mendelssohn Chumash was like the Steinsalz Gemara. Now, what do I mean when I say that? Even though there's huge differences, Mendelssohn was a Moscow, really was, and Steinsalz was a Lubavitcher Chassid, so there are big differences, but I'm talking about what's similar. Now, what's similar is that they had a utility, but you could hear that somebody wouldn't like it from a very from point of view. Um, you understand? For a whole bunch of reasons. Now, but the Be'etem, there's only trafe in it. So I repeat, if you read the Mendelssohn Chumash, the beer as he calls it, it's a, it's a translation into German, but it also has a pirish. Plus he has Rashi and Unclos. But it has a pirish. It's his own pirish. He did one of the five books, and another guy did another five books of the Chumash. And it's, I would say, like this, rationalistic, but totally firm. So, things were so bad, that by the time you get to the 1810s, uh, Shmuel Landau is basically saying like this, people are reading Bible stories now, they don't even, can't even read Hebrew. Uh, the the Chinuch the, the become totally watered down. This public school that originally opened my father's time was supposed to be two hours a day, is now you know, eight hours a day, the Illuminate Kodesh is reduced to nothing. Uh, for, the Jewish people are losing their familiarity with the Hebrew language, and that's a disaster. And he even quoted Montesquieu, the French uh, philosopher, who said in this Persian letters that, uh, he quotes Montesquieu, where he said, the Jews have survived because they still have a Shaif Salosh and Kodesh, whereas the other groups, they retained their language, and the other groups haven't survived. That's not wrong. In this day and age, American Jews do not know Hebrew, and they're intermarrying like crazy. You know, it's falling apart. And so basically, he says, I appealed to everybody to buy the uh, Steins al-Gemara. Or in his day, I appealed to everybody to buy the uh, Mendelssohn Chumash. By the way, Rabbi Kivager also later bought a, a copy. That which is treif in one year is not necessarily treif in the other year. Now, if it had been really treif, then it's treif at all times and places. But if it's a relative treifness, like I said before, one could make a case, I get it, that the Shines of Gemara is no good because it prevents Ian and Amelus. I hear that. I, I understand that. But on the other hand, you could also see that the same person who says Trafe now, in another context, in another place where nobody knows anything, he said, good, use that Gemara because otherwise they'll do nothing. So that's how he was talking with Shmuel Landau. As uh, time went on, the uh, situation in Prague very slowly went you know, worse. Now, it's still very traditional, they're still from Milam, but you can see that's the older generation. The younger generations are eh, like I'm suing now, eh, like that. And, uh, you know, there's still a lot of respect for the, for the past, but there's also a lot of uh, Europeanization, shall we say. 
The government under the Habsburgs remained just as bad as they always were. And he couldn't do nothing as a police state. And believe me, there's a speech that, that he has where he's uh, praising the emperor. I mean, you think he was a god after the victory of Napoleon. And he praises the Austrian generals, Prince Schwarzenberg and the others who were from Prague. You know, they're, they're Tzadikim, Chassidi, Olaf. It's a little bit revolting, but you know he had to do it. He compares the victory of the Kaiser Franz over Napoleon at the end. You know, the three emperors defeated Napoleon. Uh, the Austrian Emperor, the Russian Emperor, the Tsar, and the King of Prussia, is the, plus England. They're the ones who finally knocked Napoleon out after many, many years. And he's a, is, is, is like Kadar Lomer, <laughs> you know? We have to praise, like Malki Tzedek praised <laughs> Avram after they defeated Kadar Lomer. I'm praising the King, the Emperor of Austria, who is a mamzer nef, uh, you know, it's a little bit over the top, but these, they had to do it. I'm trying to tell you. You didn't understand how our ancestors lived. The Nodebune himself has some long drusha, very interesting too, on Pashas um, Vayechi, I think it was, praising the Emperor Joseph II in his victory over the Turks in the, in the Battle of Belgrade. My goodness, you think, whoa, what happened over here? But uh, they had to do it. They had to do it. Uh, that way the government you know, won't arrest you, they'll, they'll, they'll leave you in position. At least we'll hold on to what we have. And so it's more of a holding action than an uh, offensive. And if you play defense all the time, you can't win, right? You cannot win. And uh, so as the time went by, eventually the Chubmiyava died, and then he, our hero moved into the number one spot. But it's like uh, the Israelis that I've climbed to the top of the greasy pole, but it's uh, too late in life. You get it? Uh, and so he was an old man. He was about 70, and in uh, 73, actually. And um, uh, the, I, I'll say it again. The younger generation was simply, what's the right word? Torah became irrelevant to them. It's not their anti. It's worse. It became irrelevant. They couldn't read Hebrew. Bible they knew from uh, fairy tale books, you know, from uh, German uh, stories. He complains about this in his speeches. Uh, uh, you know, he tried to respond best he could to the. He said, listen, just pick a few kids. And they should be the ones to learn Gemara. He, he couldn't even get that. And uh, therefore, he's looking over the disintegration. The world had radically changed from the time he moved as a four-year-old boy to Prague back in 1754 when it was a Torah metro- metropolis. And by 1824 and 1834, it was not. Therefore, uh, and make things worse, his own kids and nephews, they were part of the situation because the Haskola from day one, was popular in a certain version in Prague. Uh, even Roshmuel Landau, as a young man, was into the Haskalah in the sense of Loshan Kodesh, Dikduk, Tanakh, nothing unfrom. And in his time, when he was young, all the masculine in Prague were from. But they heard that there's something besides Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. And, you know, that's okay, but... It opened the door to people who came after them and the, and the elders who were much more kal. And basically, they totally did away with Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. And when that happens, then the Haskal doesn't survive either. People become more and more secularized, and they're interested in German culture. Why not? Germany has a much bigger culture than the Jews have, and uh, especially in the early 1800s. And uh, they, they basically assimilated in cultural assimilation. And so it was a bummer. 
Now, in these last decade of his life, uh, he must have seen the way things are going, and that's when he publishes uh, his father's uh, speeches, his drushes, uh, 1827-28. By this time, his nephew, which is his brother's son, I don't have time to go into the brother, Yisrael, Yisrael's son, Moshe Landau, to the nephew of our hero, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, had become one of the, uh, gone over to the enemy, let me put it that way. He became one of the members of the uh, Richie Riches and of the Balabatim. And uh, he was very proud that his grandfather was known but he himself was a big Moscow, I would say Rosh HaMaskilim. He published the, Moscow, the Haskell Journal in the 1820s and 30s and 40s, uh, and uh, Moshe Landau. But he's in a position now that he has money and he has a printing press, and so he says for family pride, he tells his uncle, who's an old man, you know, you should publish this 80s stuff. And that's when he published the Dorish Latin in 1827, uh, which are the uh, Yal Kagam Shabbos Agola Shabbos Shubad Rashi of the Nebi Huda. So they're like super lumdish. And uh, it's a classic of the old fashioned type of lumdish. And it's very interesting because our hero appends, again, I repeat, he edited this. Nebi Huda had, you know, pieces of paper and everything where over years he did different pieces of Yal Kagam starting in Yampol and later on. And that's, you know, and, and uh, Kiyad Tukfo Batora, you can imagine what Nodibuda did with the sugars of Yalkagam over the course of years. It's a fat safer. Um, and it's, it's a classic of pilpul in the old sense of in and out. And it's very sad. The son who, who publishes it, Hakdama Ben Machaber, he has to like apologize because the audience in Prague is already of the situation where Pilpul, eh, Lumdus, all baloney. And he has to say, no, no, no. It's not true. Uh, it's a wonderful safer. My father was trying to cop- copy the Prussian Strachan, which is not really true. But anyway, uh, but, you know, in, in, in the style of the uh, fancy Pilpul. And he defends it by saying, I just want to share this with you. He says that um, it's an educational device uh, in Pilpul. Uh, a sheer can have an aesthetic quality to it, which is a very muscular kind of notion. And um, what does he say over here? Zero chacham b'chol dor v'nesavalim shekol tosi yeshiva marbitzi terbi yisrael kishal yoshonim l'talminim darki amishlam atalmud upiski alochas hayotzim b'shakav atar b'shit desnei atalmudim. Then we we give a sheer on shas. They would construct the shear in an artistic way. And um, I, don't know, I don't know if I have time for this. It's a, it's a very long, but it's a very wonderful kind of uh, explanation. And basically what he's saying is like this. And by the way, I've seen this once in a while in the, in the slach after I read this. Uh, some, what they're saying is, there's a certain artistic artificiality to the way um, it... Well, let me see. Hold on for a second. Let me pull something up that I wrote long ago. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, here we go. So it is with the non-agotic parts of the Torah. The Gedolim, the great rabbis down the ages... I'm giving you an English paraphrase of what he wrote. Uh, master educators that they were, 
realized that a straightforward study of the laws and the concepts of the Gemara would be rather dry. They therefore sought to enliven the study of the Gemara and his commentaries to capture the imagination of the students by organizing the information, the readings, and the analyses of the Talmudic passages around pointed questions and ingenious answers, whole series of them. These questions and answers served as mnemonics, helping the student to remember the material by virtue of their sequence and even more by their remarkable ingenuity, which was calculated to make an impression on the mind of the student trained to appreciate such ingenuity that he would not forget them. In this fashion, the pilpul spiced up the material and made it more palatable and even tasty to the student, and it left him wanting more. So the pilpul made the study of the Gemara exciting. Therein lies his great value and continuing popularity. The great teachers, therefore, were artists in their presentation of the material. They knew how to weave the content of the Talmud into a series of questions and answers in which the resolution of one problem naturally led to the raising of a second problem elsewhere concerning an entirely unrelated subject in an entirely different context, the resolution of a problem in one tractate led to a problem in a different one, the resolution of a problem in one statement of Rashi provoked a problem in understanding something Rashi stated elsewhere in a different context which seemed unconnected to the discussion at hand, and so on throughout the whole of rabbinic literature, even though the Rebbe, who was teaching one Gemara, had no reason to carry his students to consider a problem in an unrelated Gemara, he would not satisfy himself with merely explaining the Gemara in hand, but he would deliberately lead his students all over to Shas in a tour de force in order to prove or demonstrate that the other sources, which given their different location and different context, seem to be unconnected to the discussion at hand, were actually quite relevant. Uh, the, other, the other sources contained concepts, in other words, explicit or implicit, which were relevant to the discussion in this Gemara. Such performances, he says, were called drushos. That's what a drusha is, technically speaking, which is a term that has many meanings in Hebrew, but that's how he used it. Uh, and that's what he means when I'm publishing Dorish Letzion. It is the artistry of the pilpulim that attracted the students. The young men of yeshiva delight in the architecture and the logical construction of well, logical sequence of well-constructed pilpulim, but they're merely the adornment, the beautiful wrapping of the points themselves. The discussions, the insight and meaning of the sources are true on their own. They're independent of Pilpul. The Pilpul is a nice way of presenting those conclusions and insights. If they're untrue, they represent a, per, a, a perversion of the Pilpulistic system. I wrote that somewhere. The, 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 it's, it's a long business. If you're interested at all in what I'm saying, I might lose some people. Go be Mayan in the Hakdama of the Menemachaber to the uh, Dorish Letzion, the Alkagam stuff. It's actually very fascinating, but that would have to be a podcast on its own. Uh, you know, you have to be willing to look at it. But it's true. If you've ever had a good Magashir, especially in Yeshiva days, like, for example, in there you probably had Rabbi Kalevsky. If you have a Magashir, it's a, it's a work of art. Agreed? You know, you know beforehand where, uh, he knows beforehand what he wants to say. Question is how to, to close it. I've seen in the Tzlach, for example, something where he raised a question immediately, or maybe I thought of it myself. I remember it's from the past. And I see that another Buddha, he asks it in the form of a question, and he takes it up and down and in and out until he finally comes up with the answer. Really, you could have hopped that answer right away. You understand? You could have hopped the point right away. But it's considered cool to do it that way. So Lumbus has um, styles. And I'm sure people would give the Magad Shears on the Daf Yomis, you know what I'm talking about. 
There's ways of putting it out, ways of presenting it. Of course, what was popular in one century is not identical with popular today or other centuries, but the notion that you know the stuff beforehand, but you want to put it in the form of a she'ela and a tshuva and a kasha and a terrace and all that, that is crucial to the old way of learning once upon a time. And this is what he talks about over there. See, so he published the He also published some of his father's uh, Stam speeches uh, with Avastion, also like in 1820, 1829, in his 70s, late 70s. So again, you have the uh, older son of Nebuchadnezzar and the nephew of that older son, who's now really, uh, he has the big printing press, and he's the Rosh Hashanah That's a fact. Uh, that is a fact. And uh, together, they want to preserve the grandfather's glorious legacy, and they're putting these things out. By the way, the Avastion is like 12 drushes of the father, and like four or five drushes of the son. So if you want to see some of the drushes of our hero, his, I'm talking about regular sermons, you know, with the old-fashioned style with a lot of lumdas in it, but in a, actually, actually, in Avastion, it's not so much lumdas. If you want to see that style, you look at the Avastion. These are people who are into the Nerdvihuda and that whole genre, okay? So what I'm trying to get across today is the son played a major role in, in, in publishing the father's legacy, although the son would have preferred to have his own legacy, and he would have preferred to be the Al Basin and the head of Prague. But he was an old man, and it only went to worse, because in the early 1830s, started a reform movement in Prague. That's right, a reform movement in Prague. And uh, one of the leaders was his nephew. It's uh, very sad, the grandson of Nerebuda, Moshe Lando, the publisher uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, uh, I, I always distinguish between Reform A and Reform B. Reform A were people who, who were uh, really turned off by what they considered the undignified nature of the from worship system, which is plenty in there. Let me just use one example, talking and davening. Uh, you know, it's a balagan. It's F.K.R.S. Uh, no, the shul's not a church. They thought that's a bad thing. Uh, the shul should be having a very uh, heavy decorum, Bechlal, the 1830s, was the, dec- the decade in which all over Europe, or let's put it this way, all over Central and Western Europe, from and not from, everybody was hit with this um, uh, wave of feeling that we have to um, reform the services for dignity purposes. Even the, fr- this is like Sam Sreville Hirsch type thing, you know what I mean? And there's even the from ones, but they said you can't have any calling out anymore in Shul and... Uh, uh, you know, Kohanim should wear slippers when they do and, and uh, no screaming, and uh, everything would be decorum and, and quiet. In other words, you're saying over here there should be no talking during davening, not because the Shulchan Aruch said it, because that's been around forever, but that was honored in the breach, but because for modernity purposes. And it's a question of how far you went. There's a wonderful article, I must have mentioned this before, from Professor Lowenstein. Um, I don't have it in front of me right now in which he has this great, fantastic chart. It's in one of my lectures that is on my website, I mean, on my uh, YouTube thing, way back when, from like 15 years ago, um, I remember we put it up there, the late Jake Shuchman. He has these wonderful things where in each, they call synagogues Ordnungen, uh, which is orders of prayer and decorum in synagogues. And it hit Prague. Now, to the degree that it's about decorum, it's not so bad. To the decree that to the degree that you want to have an organ in there, which they did do, they had an organ played by guy. Uh, it's bad, but you know you can only say, "Why is it so bad? Where does it say you can't have a guy play an organ in shul?" 
Now, I know it's unthinkable that you wouldn't be, I'm talking about it back in the early 1800s, uh, when the reform movement started, one of the things they did was bring in an organ. And our hero was part of the Frum reaction when, in 1819, they started the first Reformed temple in Hamburg. It's very famous. And it included, when I said before, uh, an organ and a choir and all this other business, and the prayers in German, and they removed, you know, Zion and Mashiach and things like that, from the davening. And uh, specifically in the organ, the reformers in Hamburg, when they started, they secured Schaus and Schubas from, I would say, Class B rabbis in Hungary and especially Italy, in which, from a very technical perspective, if you have a guy play the organ, what exactly is the iser? Is a guy playing it, right? Uh, and there's nothing wrong with having a choir. Uh, you, you you see where I'm going with this? And uh, it was called Noga or Noga or something like that, these uh, uh, booklets. That's when the Gedolim got together and published something called Ela de Rebris, in which they blasted this to hell. And by the Gedolim, I mean the Chassam Sofer, Rabbi Kiveger, Mordechai Bennett. Uh, they were the dynamic ones who came out to bl- and stigmatized reformist treif. They didn't simply say, this is not a good idea. They said, this is treif. This is where it starts the whole orthodox evaluation of the reform movement. It's not just something weird or a little bit to the left. You know, it's mama's treif. You get it? The reform movement wanted to present itself as a kind of open orthodox. That's what the reform movement wanted to present itself. And these rabbis said they're treif. Now I want to tell you something. Uh, our hero is on there. The Prague Basin send in a thing saying it's all Osir and Treif. And by the way, they used to use Prague as a justification because according to the old sources, there was an organ in the Shul in Prague, which they used on Friday night. But the Basin said, first of all, it was long ago. Second of all, it was used until Shabbos. So there indeed was a thing, I know it sounds funny, in Prague, listen very closely to what I'm about to say, by Kabbalah Shabbos, up to the mo- moment when you're Makabal Shabbos, so I think for L'Chadodi, if I remember correctly, they would have an organ and some other music stuff there. But the minute you finish L'Chadodi and you're about to literally be Makabal Shabbos, just before that, they would put it away. And that was in, I don't know, the 1600s, whatever. Uh, I, I mean, it's a little strange, but nevertheless, there's a thing like that. But they wanted to clarify, nobody ever said you do anything like this on Shabbos itself. And, you know, the Reform said, yeah, but you see, you still had an organ in the shul. And all the arguments went back and forth. So, my point is, if you have the Ela de Rebris, I have it somewhere. Uh, Landos there, and the Basin of Prague, and Berlazer Flecalus, Shumiawa, they're not the main players. You see? They're not the main players. The dynamic ones is the Sam Sofer, Rabbi Kiveger, people like that, who are coming out, you know, blasting with both cannons. Uh, Prague was from, of course, but, uh, you know, uh, you get the impression of exhausted volcanoes. So it's very sad, you know, very sad to contemplate. And uh, so the last years of his life, our hero was using all the influence he could get to prevent the reform movement from, from building a shoal in uh, Prague. And uh, he had a hard time, and eventually they won. Now, um, as long as he was alive in his 80s, you know, he knew the government, he had a position on the base, then... I don't know how he worked it out with his nephew. I, I have no idea. But it wasn't Pushit. But once he died, in the middle of this whole controversy, 
um, they made that show, and there was a, a reformed temple in Prague um, down to uh, Hitler. You understand? As far as I know, they may have revived, seriously, I think it's, it might be back in business today, uh, called the Spanish Synagogue. And, uh, you know, it was a Prague system, which was, I think they kept the old prayers, but they have an organ and, I don't know, some other things like that. Uh, and uh, these are things nobody knows about. They're one of the first shows to have a dome. You know what I mean? Like a Moorish architecture. In America, plenty of shows have a dome. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Shmuel Landa said that's, that's like a, a church. It's also. And, um, and by the way, in Pressburg also, when they built a bigger shul in the time of South Sofer, uh, they, they called for having a dome. That was considered a Jewish-looking thing, Moorish architecture. And the South Sofer raised hell, and they had to change the architecture and all that. These were issues that animated our ancestors once, once upon a time. And finally, he died in 1834, uh, in the middle of this whole fight, uh, old and decrepit. So, um, as I said before, is, is a, I finished by saying, this is a story of a great person. I forgot, by the way, in his later years, when he published his father's stuff, he also put out his own Shalos and Shubas, Shivat Sion. Shalos and Shubas, Sion. So the father is the Nod of Yehuda, the son is the Shivat Sion, but a lot of the Shubas of the son are also the Nod of Yehuda, Madura Tinyana. You get it? And uh, this child's a Jew was just like, doesn't go to anybody else's. Uh, I'm, sorry, I, I'm sorry to admit that I don't have them. There's some Hebrew books. Uh, and I was really going to get a copy before I went here, but then I didn't have time. Uh, but, you know, I've seen them quoted here and there. Uh, but you see what I'm, that's my point. Everybody's heard of Nebuchadnezzar. Yehuda. Very few people heard of Sheba Sion. And most people don't know that Sheba Sion is is the, the son of the Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, Tzion, which always appears as the same gematria as Yecheskel, right? What is it? Uh, 156. It's the same gematria as Yecheskel. So the Tzion, Yavas Tzion, Dorish Le Tzion, uh, you know, uh, Sheba Tzion, you know, they're all uh, uh, alluding to Yecheskel Landau, you know. Uh, so, in my estimation, that's all you ever get with me, is, is, a, is a frustrated uh, life. He could have been uh, had situations done differently, he could have exercised uh, a position of authority, commensurate with his kaiches. He was of the Godel uh, caliber, uh, but it didn't work out with him. Plus, he had the misfortune of being in the tidal wave. Uh, you know, the modernity was hitting over there, and Prague was a place where uh, the government would prevent you from doing anything extremely from your own balabatim would prevent it. Uh, the young generation simply became less and less interested, and Prague turned out to be a situation where for the rest of its time, down till Hitler's time, it wasn't a trafe, it was just unbelievably anemic. You understand? There were Jews there, and some were more religious, some were less religious. By the time you get to the 1900s, very small number of religious families. There were some, you know, and they had their abundant all the rest of it, but up, geschwach, big time. And so Dover Yudua then, when some of the Hasidic Rebbe's visited Prague later in the 1800s, they said, what happened over here? And they would go, they said, where's the note of Yehuda buried? Who? Who? You had a big rabbi here. Oh, really? You know? The, the Jews were just, like, you know, uh, ignorant. And you end up with the generation of Kafka, who is always bitterly complained to his father in the early 1900s. You know, he gave me no exposure to Judaism. And they were so divorced from Gomorrah, by the time you get to the second, really by the 1850s and 40s and 50s and 60s and afterwards, 
that when there was a revival of Jewish feeling in the early 1900s among young Jews in Prague, they, they, they you know they they were looking for something more than just the middle class ideal of becoming a European balabas and making some money and living with comfort. They're looking for a Jewish idealism, uh, which is it happened among Jewish students in the Prague University. See what I'm saying? There wasn't yeshiva. Jewish student Prague University who are extremely secularized, who are looking to return back to Judaism, and they don't exactly know how, and so they turn to cultural Zionism. This is an episode in the history of Jewish culture that historians write about a lot. They called him Martin Buber to give a bunch of speeches and, and uh, try to revive Jewish feeling. In other words, like, like it says in the Kuzri, they had a, a good intention, but they didn't know how to, how to recover it. And uh, from the time of Shmulanda one, you know, Prague just kind of like fell apart. So it's a uh, unusual story, as I said before. But you know, sometimes, as as I said, it shows you the importance of living in the right time in the right place. And we've all heard the story of the guy who says, "I want to be golden to Malcolm Torah." Uh, Shmuel Landau, our hero, had a son Moshe, and uh, somewhere, and I forget exactly what year, he sent him to move to Poland. I mean, the father, you could, could tell, he said, this is not a good place. Even though he lived there, and he was the head of the Kela, I mean, of the Basin and all the rest of it, but he said, you'll do better in Poland. And in Poland, the son was a shtickle maskele, but it was okay, because he was also from, and there it worked. In Prague, it just, like, uh, petered out. It petered out. Um, anyway, with that, I bid you have a good day. Again, we always appreciate all of our sponsors, especially now, uh, the Dafiomi people, and... Uh, with that I say, have a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.